welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, the White House announces new 30% tariffs on imported solar panels. What will it do to the solar industry? What will it help or hurt efforts to increase solar in the United States? And how many jobs will be lost or gained for that matter? We'll hear from experts in the solar energy field on the installation and the manufacturing side. We have a new podcast. You can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. If you want to get in touch with us or ask our guests a question, write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. But first, a short look at the top stories in science this week. We have a story from student Alicia Broussard. She's one of my youngest journalism students, clocking in at age 16. And she takes us to a fifth grade science camp designed to inspire learning by getting kids up close and personal with nature. Mother Nature gave us a gift! It's 10.32 a.m. and these sixth graders from Watsonville Middle School are at a camp, Koyanoya, up in the Santa Cruz Mountains on their knees to see a banana slug for the first time. One of the naturalist leaders picks up a slimy yellow six-inch slug. Really? She kissed like actually kissed? The children seem repulsed and excited to kiss a banana slug. They're giving their slug a smooch because it's teaching them to use their five senses as a tool for discovery. They pucker up their faces since slugs can turn your lips numb. Earlier, a naturalist nicknamed Fauna told the group why banana slug is important to the forest. Important things about banana slugs? Our small hike takes us to a mini waterfall spilling over large boulders. The redwood trees with their reddish rough bark soar skyward through a mix of fall colors from sycamores and alders. Underfoot is a carpet of rotting leaves. The children's eyes wander with curiosity as their leaders ask what all this might turn into. Maybe another tree? Or how about a flower? They, all, they have all week to guess and fall into more questions. One of the camp's naturalists is Chicken Man. He says while it might look like your average summer camp, the aim here is to educate and inspire love of nature and encourage the students to love making the world healthy. By experiencing nature and being in it, that's how they learn to love it. And when they love it, that's how they, then they want to learn how to care for it. And so when we go to the creek, we learn about um, the Pajaro Valley watershed. And the Corleus Creek that they study goes into Watsonville and to Pajaro Valley for um, the water that they drink. And so then they care more about make sure that their water's clean. And Camp Koyanoya has around 10 teachers. They want kids to know that earth education is just as important as their other types of learning and that it really starts with awareness. So my name is Fauna and I, my name is Shelly. So um, I do think that it helps somewhat, maybe not a hundred percent, but when we circle up at the end of the week and they say, Fauna, I taught my mom that you can eat a whole apple and things like that. So yes, um, maybe they're not taking away the whole picture of nature, but hopefully that love for hiking and love for being outdoors and learning more is staying in their brain and as they get older they'll remember things that we talked about or something like that. Another naturalist self-named Squid shares her perspective on nature learning. And so some come to us and they already know things like watershed and they already know um, you know conservation techniques and they already know adaptation and so our job is to build on that and give them kind of real world experiences where they're not looking at a textbook but they're looking at this plant or this creature that has an adaptation and we can point it out and we can explore. A recent study from American Institutes for Research showed improved science scores and other benefits among at-risk sixth grader students in California who participated in week-long outdoor science schools. Their scores rose by 27%. Students who attended science camps also showed better cooperation and conflict resolution skills. Even with two hikes a day, kids don't whine and actually enjoy smelling fresh air, searching for more insects, and slipping on their butts from the mud. Every breakfast, lunch, and dinner are used as ways to educate students about nature and their impact on Earth. Like, ah, like red, orange, yellow, bright colors like that. It's like, ah, don't eat me. I taste bad. Like ladybugs, too. After every meal, the kids are evaluated by how much waste has been thrown into the trash by weighing the levels of garbology. Kids present their progress on a whiteboard. Having the least amount of garbology for them was winning. <laughs> It's now morning, and every kid is full and reminded to do the required essentials before going on our challenging hike. Before Fauna puts us out into the middle of the wood, Redwoods, each child holds their very own green journal, which gives us a new task to do each page. You'll have to, don't worry. 
All right. Y'all ready to hike or what? Yeah. 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 All right. So time shoot. On the Wishing Tree Trail, the steep hill requires us to get our hands dirty from mud and sweat. The kids are all blindfolded and placed with the tree. Instead of relying on their eyes, they do a lot of hugging, crunching, and sniffing. After their blindfolds are off and they're writing, I notice many of the kids being really into the tree and writing down details and using adjectives. Not hollow and definitely felt like a living tree, one of my kids writes. Going to this science camp and using the world for a teaching lab is unbelievable. I enjoyed being called sunflower, calling for birds, and not showering for three days. Would I do this again? Hell yes. Would I encourage these 11-year-olds to keep learning from a camp like this? Of course. These kids started out with missing their homes and electronics and came away with a better understanding of the world world inside. I'm proud of them, and you should be too. For Planet Watch, I'm Alicia Broussard. And I'm very proud of Alicia for that story. I'm just out of high, in high school still and studying in my writing for the broadcast media class at Cabrillo College. Also from that class is Maya Rodriguez, who's going to present a story for you now, and Tommy Martin. Yale University and Columbia University have published the new Environmental Performance Index. This report tracks the environmental health and sustainability of 180 countries, ranking them on 24 performance indicators such as greenhouse gas emissions, air quality, and water resources. The study has been tracking environmental performance for two decades and releases a report every two years. This year, the U.S. ranked number 27, putting the country behind most other industrialized nations. The U.S. received strong scores on sanitation and air quality, but scored rather poorly in other categories. The U.S. scored a mere 8.84 out of 100 on deforestation, and the country's score on greenhouse gas emissions were worse than the two previous years. Globally, issues such as sanitation and drinking water have improved, but according to the report, the leading threat to public health is air pollution. And Tom Martin is going to tell us a little bit about what happens when you lose a satellite. Whoops. Yeah, uh, an amateur astronomer named Scott Tilley recently located a $150 million NASA satellite, which had been missing since 2005. Tilley was searching for a classified government satellite called Zuma when he received signals from NASA's image satellite. He confirmed that the signal was coming from the long-lost satellite by determining its orbit and comparing it to NASA data. Image launched in 2000 and had already completed its two-year mission to study the impact of magnetic storms in Earth's atmosphere and created a 3D map of the charged particles that move along our planet's magnetic field lines when it was declared missing. While another satellite is already following up on the mission, uh, or on the mission researchers are attempting to reestablish contact with the image satellite. Thank you, Tommy. And if you're interested in learning to write for the broadcast media, being an intern here on Planet Watch, get in touch with us or go online at cabrillo.edu and sign up for writing for the broadcast media. It's really fun and will get you training. So um, I highly recommend it. <laughs> and it's very cheap to do. So um, <laughs> please do sign up for that. Yeah, Rachel's class starts tomorrow. Classes Monday. start tomorrow. But you can still add any time Monday or Wednesday. And we are starting 9.30 a.m. bright and early Monday morning. I'll be in the Tuesday class. Yay. Awesome. Looking uh, forward to it. I also t teach mass media there. So on to our uh, topic of the day. I'm very excited. Um, we have three different guests today. A couple of them will be calling in, and one is here in studio with us. Uh, first guest who will be on. here for the whole time will be Marcus Beck. He is with CTO of SIVA Technologies. He's a solar manufacturing firm in the Bay Area, and he is a former solar inventor, I guess is the best way I can describe him. He's got several patents um, when he was with Solyndra, which is now closed, but he was um, there uh, before it shut, obviously. And we're really excited because he has a broad experience both um, in the part of creating solar panels, but also in the in the whole economy and because recently it was announced and joe is going to tell you more about this that there's a 30 percent tariff on imports there's a lot of talk about what that means for the solar industry so we're going to have many differing perspectives i think today and possibly some hot debate on this topic yeah, i just wanted to comment on tommy's story there about the lost and now found satellite it was kind of like et phone home <laughs> from our orbit around the earth um, well, as Rachel announced at the top of the hour uh, this past week, Trump announced this 30% uh, tariff on imports of solar equipment from other countries, in particular China. 
and a big row has ensued and there's all kinds of head scratching about whether this is going to hurt or harm or both or neither the u.s solar companies and there are more than one kind of company by the way most of the ones based here in the united states are kind of like our local mom and pop pop shops uh one of which has sponsored this program in the past uh the, the designers and installers but then there's also the whole manufacturing side of the industry and um, one of the greats in the field of solar, one of the pioneers uh, I interviewed and played, we played that on our uh, first weekend in November show. It was David Katz, who, was, who lives way up far north in the Redwood and marijuana stronghold of far northern California. And those people in back backwoods, they uh, paid for solar with the cash from the marijuana and they needed to play their cassette tapes using the electricity from solar. And this was how the solar industry a, a part of how that all began. I mean, it really began using you know solar on spacecraft. But anyway, David Katz is one of the classic solar pioneers, and uh, he get, shared with me a couple of thoughts that I want to now share with you that provide essential underpinning of the discussion that is now going to follow. Namely, um, the Chinese have recently done what the United States used to do, which, you know, if America ever was great, what made us great was partly government investment you know, in research and development in science, basic research. And that is what uh, got the aircraft industry their big break, the computer industry their big break. You know, this wasn't just little mom and pop shops in a totally free market. It was uh, wise investment and policy. Well, the Chinese have been doing this. And, you know, they, uh, in 2008 or thereabouts, they discovered what we had the knowledge of, but they didn't. And they figured out how to purify silicon and to do it, be able to get pure silicon that you need for solar cells a lot cheaper than our countries, our companies were letting them do it. One of the big companies that was purifying silicon, you didn't need a whole lot of it back in the old days. You needed it for microchips in the computer industry. There you need super pure silicon, but you don't need much of it. For solar cells, you can use a little bit less pure, but you need massive quantities of it. Well, anyway, one of the big companies that was purifying silicon based here uh, was actually one of their uh, – Monsanto, believe it or not. Uh, the infamous Monsanto had a part of those holdings. But anyway, the Chinese got onto this uh, back in the uh, 08 or 09, so they could purify silicon a lot cheaper. So that has brought the cost down. And again, that's an example of research and development and deployment and some government policy investment in that. So we can do tricks with tariffs and all this stuff, but if you don't wise up and have your government picking winners, now, you know, the right wing loves to attack picking winners. Well, what's our government been doing? We've been picking losers. <laughs> our government has been picking fossil fuel losers big time. So anyway, it's about time that uh, we got a little wise government investment. Chinese are showing us how we used to do it. So there, there's some just some prefacing thoughts, uh, courtesy partly of David Katz. And thank you, David. Okay, so Rachel, go ahead and introduce uh, who all we got here coming up. Well, I, I introduced Marcus. I'll introduce him again and let him speak. Um, Marcus has been in this industry a long time, a lot of it on the manufacturing side, and I want to just ask your take on this announcement. There have been statements, and we'll be hearing from people who believe that as many as 40,000 jobs could be lost in the installation industry in this country if this tariff continues to weigh on uh, imports uh, in the way that they think they will and that they'll pass them on to the consumer. What is your take on this news from your perspective as someone who's been in the manufacturing side? Are we going to shift jobs over to manufacturing that are higher paid and more of them? Is that the idea? Or, or what is the big idea here that's supposed to help things along? Yeah, so I mean, I've been doing this since 1992, started on the research side in 2000, went into industry. Um, the term industry is probably a little premature at the time. But I think what might help the, the listeners to is how we differentiate the sector. Uh, there is what we consider an upstream part of the industry, and that is the manufacturing of the solar modules plus whatever materials you need that go in there, like the polysilicon, if it's a silicon-based. Um, and a um, module is the same as a panel? When a we module see them or on panel, the top of a, yes. a, a um, roof, there's a, a rectangle? Yeah. Yeah. Scientifically speaking, <laughs> out of the engineering side, we call it a module, okay. but uh, now the more commonly used term in the public is panel. 
Um, you also, of course, differentiate in the solar side between the solar thermal and the photovoltaic. So we normally would talk about photovoltaics, but let's just leave it there. And then there's an, a downstream side in the solar business, and that's the installation business. Um, that is, whether it's a small installer, and that's what Joe was referring to. In the United States, we really don't have a manufacturing base for the product, really. Um, what we have mostly in the United States is the downstream sector, the installation side. Did we ever have a manufacturing sector? Yes, we did. Um, as Joe was alluding to, is ultimately what happened is research and development that got us to discovering solar cells. And the first practical device was in 1954 by Bell Labs. So that's clearly a research um, application. And the mission was the Vanguard satellite that launched a little later was the first um, implementation. Um, and out of this industry came, you know, small companies that made modules and manufactured and sold them. But um, as the, um, the market was taking off because predominantly of Germany uh, in uh, 1999, the Germans passed a, a law that uh, subsidized uh, through a, um, a feed-in tariff the um, installation of, of product. And then the industry really was scrambling. Um, and we did have companies that manufactured in the United States, but today we really have hardly anyone manufacturing in the United States. And that gets us to maybe this topic. The two plaintiffs, um, I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, but the two applicants, uh, Suniva, a Chinese-owned company, actually founded in the United States, was not competitive, was bought by a Chinese company. And Solar World, which was a German company, went through two bankruptcies, and right now the American arm is treated a little differently. They claimed that the imported modules from China were undercutting prices. They could not sustain selling and making product in the United States. What in my mind was lost there is the fact that if you're not competitive, the solution is not to go to the government and say, give me a tariff. The solution should be come up with a new technology. And that's where it gets interesting. We have a third company in the United States that manufactures, and that's First Solar. And First Solar is the largest PV company in the world by market cap, larger than the 10 biggest Chinese companies together. Hmm. And there's a reason for it. They're based in Ohio, right? Their headquarters, Arizona. Their U.S. manufacturing is in, uh, in Ohio, in Perrysburg. Most of the manufacturing is in Malaysia, and now they're building out Vietnam. But the point is they don't use silicon. They use a very different technology, and that goes back to, you know, there was research that showed that silicon is not the right material to make up a product. And they follow this path, and they are uh, more competitive than the Chinese. So here we have two companies that follow, let's speak, the old stream silicon. While that train has left the station, the German equipment manufacturers sold, and some Americans too, sold the technology to the Chinese starting in 2006. They gave them the equipment, the processes, all the Chinese needed were buildings and people. And they, all the know-how came from the West. And of course, if you look at the labor costs, environmental legislation and so on, it's not really surprising to realize that if you make a product in China in those conditions, it will be lower cost than if you make it in Germany, Spain, um, Italy, or in the United States. Um, and you know, there's a company, SunPower, most people know. They, they don't manufacture anything in the United States. It's all done in Malaysia, the Philippines, and they had some assembly in Mexico. Um, that's where it gets a little tricky, um, that we have this upstream part where the United States hardly plays a role. And First Solar is not impacted by this ruling because they don't have a silicon technology. And now you have the hmm. downstream sector, and the downstream sector got used to low-cost product from China. By the way, I'm dying to know, uh, what is that product that uh, First Solar, is it the SIGs, cadmium, no, indium, gallium, diselenide, or is it's, it? It's cadmium telluride. Cadmium telluride, yeah. Okay. okay, and of course, cadmium is toxic, but as you're fond of saying, since it's in a compound with the tellurium, it's a completely different animal. You can actually eat cadmium telluride. I wouldn't say that, but it's like sodium <laughs> is, is toxic and chlorine is toxic, but sodium chloride you can buy in any store. It's right. on any, most mm -hmm. people's tables. So let's get back to the, the issue, which supposedly is why this was being done, which was all about jobs, right? This is the tariff rationale. What's going to happen? I know none of us have a crystal ball, but if the rationale was to throw jobs toward the manufacturing sector, but we lose more on the installation sector, are we going to be at a net loss in the solar industry? Is it going to put a crimp on efforts to go solar in the U.S., which has to happen 
as fast as possible if we're going to reduce greenhouse gases. Do you think there's a net loss to the industry as a whole if you look take them together? Yeah, if you look in a, in a broader context, this is really a bad idea. So the United States economy under the Clinton administration went below 20% manufacturing. That means our economy is over 80% service-based. Again, if we look at the upstream sector, which is manufacturing, where the United States really plays no role. But the downstream sector is where we've been really strong. We've added several hundred thousand jobs over the last decade. If you then, for the sake of two foreign-owned companies that at, together have about a thousand jobs at best, if at, you know, for those two companies you create legislation that then risks you know, a multiple you know, in the downstream sector, if the pricing is no longer um, you know, favorable for companies to make the profits they're looking for to go in the downstream, then it's the wrong solution for sure. Hey, folks, you can get us a question or a comment by emailing us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Yeah, and let me ask our listeners a question. Maybe you can uh, respond to this, and also so can Marcus. But um, what is the percentage over which it would change your mind? Let's say you're talking about residential solar. like You're going to go all solar to your home. What percentage of price increase would get you to just change your mind completely about this? A lot of people look at their power bill as the main deciding factor. You know, how much is it going to go down over how many years? And it's only a financial decision. For others, it's just they want to do it because of the environment. They're willing to, you know, go to any length to feel less guilty about creating climate change. So what's your sense, Marcus, about that question? Do you have a handle on you know, maybe the residential market for these panels and would, do you think it's going to put a crimp on customers ordering these things? Or is there, are there, is there a lot of flexibility in that market where it could still go up and everybody would still be happy? It's actually, so in order to look at this, we have to look at a cost breakdown of a photovoltaic system. And it's interesting, the module is less than 20% of the overall system cost. So the Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Liver. Berkeley Liver, uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab. Yeah, <laughs> they publish go. a report every year, um, you know, tracking the sun uh, under the Department of Energy's Sunshot program, and they look at the cost of solar in the United States and the utility scale. That's big systems that typically are free field, like the ones you see in the Nevada desert. Yeah, these solar giant valley, solar farms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there is industry um, systems. These are systems that typically are on a company's roof that are you know slightly smaller, smaller but still big, and then there's residential systems. And if we stick with the residential, because that's probably most of your customers' interest, residential systems, United States, in 2016, we don't have the 17 numbers yet, the total cost was just under $4 a watt. A watt is the unit by which we measure, you know, like the energy that comes out of the, um, uh, the panel, and your electric bill is in, in watt hours, that means... Kilowatt the, hours, right? Well, yeah, and kilo is just a thousand watts, but mm -hmm. it's basically taking the, the, the power pipe by the time. But so four a little less than four dollars a watt, and the module is less than fifty cents. The inverter is less than forty cents. So you have less than ninety cents in the hardware. That means you have about three dollars, let's say, in the rest. Wrecking, but wrecking is not much. It's some aluminum railing. It's mostly labor and customer acquisition because you've got to remember to get to a, a, a private household, it's going to cost you. You have to advertise, you have to send somebody out, maybe you have to, every roof is different, so there's a cost of engineering it, then there's permitting, which in the United States is still a hassle compared to Germany, where you can fill it out online, it's less than a page you've printed out, it takes you 10 minutes. Here you've got to go down, pay money even, right? So if you look at that, so if the less than 20% of the system cost is the module, if that goes up in, you know, in, in price, well, everybody will have a different threshold. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like earlier you said, well, this tariff's a bad idea. It'll hurt jobs on the one hand. But you said, but if demand is going to stay high because it's such a fraction of the solar installation on, on homes, it almost contradicted what you said before, that it may not hurt jobs because it's not going to... Ah, no, no. <laughs> I'm Most systems in the United States are not residential. Ah. The market that we have last year, which, you know, the numbers are, are coming in right now, let's just say just 10 to 12 gigawatts. No, gigawatts is one with nine zeros. Um, most of that market is what we call utility scale market. And this is a for-profit, this is, you know, cutthroat business because you're looking at your, your entire, you have a cost of capital because you can't, you know, like you don't have all this money typically, so you borrow it from investors and you, re you promise them a return. 
you also need to sell your electricity. So you're really looking at getting all the components at the lowest cost. So here, if a product suddenly becomes 30% more expensive, even though there it's even a smaller, you know, they don't pay the same price as a residential. Uh, in the free field, you know, utility scale, the cost is maybe 40, less than 40 cents of what, you know, prices as low as 30 we've seen, um, you know, versus the 50 in a residential system. So there it's a difference, you know, because if you're not dealing with a system that's several hundred million dollars or, you know, then yeah, it makes a difference. So okay, well, so it sounds like what you're saying is it's the industrial sector that's really going to suffer the, uh, the most. Yeah. Well, but the small companies that install modules, you know, they will also suffer. Yeah, yeah, definitely going to be a bunch of jobs lost. And our hope is that, hey, this is a flash in the pan, just like the guy who's trying to implement this. And, of course, this is all subject to WTO approval, by the way, or, or, or to them not ruling against it, which could happen any time. Isn't that what was <clears throat> supposed to prevent trade wars was the WTO that yes. people were going to, you know? What, you know, I, and I don't know whether we're going to get Bernadette on, on the phone here, but... Unfortunately, she, she hasn't called in, and we have Tony uh, Tersall on the yeah, line, so me, I think we're going to jump the line well, here and put him on, um, okay, if you I'll, don't mind. I'll introduce Tony while yeah. Rachel's bringing him on. Uh, uh, he and I are both alumni of uh, UC Santa Cruz while well, I was a graduate student there, and we were at an alumni event. Uh, you know, they have this alumni week in April, and we were sitting next to each other at some interesting presentation, and... We discovered, hey, we're both into oceanography and geophysics and, you know, teaching at community colleges. And uh, anyway, uh, then I found out he has a condo in Utah and goes skiing. And I actually went and spent a week with him skiing there about 12 or 13 years ago. But Tony uh, founded and owns, he is the principal and founder of a solar design and installation company down in Monterey called Applied Solar Energy. Very sharp guy. I've had him come and speak in classes like uh, when I taught at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies down in Monterey on uh, renewable energy policy. He's always got good analysis uh, and uh, well uh, and Tony I already asked you uh, the other night and I forgot your answer uh, assuming you can hear us now. Um, is your company both residential and commercial jobs and roughly what uh, what's the breakdown percentage-wise of the work you guys do? Um, yep. Hello? Yeah yeah. That was, we're going to pot, uh, you, pot you. Say probably 90 10. Um, residential 90 mostly? Residential, 10% uh -huh. commercial. Okay. Um, let me correct one thing. I actually, I didn't found the company. I joined Stan Semmel, who started doing solar literally in the woods back in 1982, and I joined him in about 2001. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, welcome, and thanks for uh, agreeing to be on the air with us. And I don't know if you've been following any of what Marcus has been. Everybody, including Tony here, if you haven't already gotten the drift, uh, I call Marcus the wild man of solar. He's kind of a fire hose of information and uh, always very entertaining to listen to and talk with. But, um, yeah, so, Tony, what's your take on all of this, including any of what Marcus has said that you've caught? Uh, so I caught about the last 10 minutes. Um, yeah, so it's a... Political grandstanding, I think, in a lot of uh, sense, it will hurt the industry. You know, there's always a, a supply-demand curve. You know, price, things are sensitive to price, and price goes up, so it's going to cut, uh, you know, some people. It might not be a huge amount, but there's something like 220,000 people working in installation side, so if you cut that by 10%, it's 20,000 jobs. Um, and if you think about it, if you were trying to enhance the U.S. industry, if you thought you could do that, you'd have a graduated tariff that started out small because there's, you know, not much production now, uh, with it gradually increasing so that someone would say, oh, I could build a factory because by the time I get it built, there'll be this tariff that protects me. But instead, they have a tariff that comes in immediately at a high rate, disrupts the industry when there isn't production in the U.S., that they scale down so that by the time you get your factory built, you're no longer protected. So it doesn't make any sense if that's what you were really trying to accomplish. But that's not really what they're trying to accomplish. It's all political. Um, you know, so it will damage the industry, um, but the prices have been coming down for years. They'll continue to come down. So it's a blip. It'll delay how much solar you put in, which, you know, Trump probably is happy with. He likes coal. And uh, it's a pain, and 
you know, we'll adjust to it. And in the end, you know, the arc of history is on the side of solar. So a few years from now, there'll still be more solar and it'll continue to increase. Yeah, there's a bright future for that industry any way you cut it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's going to take over the entire energy landscape of the world, and energy is the largest industry in the world, and nobody's going to stop that. <laughs> and it's just a matter of, you know, when. From the education perspective, I teach at a community college, and they, you know, want to have people go into these fields that have been expanding their solar installation programs around the state because this is a high-demand job. And there's a lot of growth in it. Is that going to slow, or you know, should these colleges stop teaching it because there aren't very many jobs? Is it still a growth area, or is this going to put a damper on it? No, it's still a growth area. There's no question about that. Oh yeah, and we were asking you the other night, Tony. We said, hey, if you're a customer th- considering solar, uh, should you wait now because of this? And I think you had a pretty uh, solid answer. What, what was your answer on that one? Well, if if you wait, the other thing that's happening is the tax credits are getting decreased over time. And so if you wait, uh, you know, the price is going to go down marginally, like uh, Marcus was saying, it's, it's a, a few percentages at most. Meanwhile, the tax credits are going to get ramped down. And so the cost now, the cost then will probably be very similar in terms of a net cost. And the other thing is that you'll miss out on several years of production. It's sort of like if when the personal computer came out, you said, well, I'm going to wait until it gets less expensive. Keep waiting. You keep not having a computer to use. And so eventually, you know, they've gotten really cheap. But if you had waited, you know, for the last 30 years, you would have not had the advantage of using a computer over all that time. Sort of similar with solar. Get in now and uh, you'll have green energy on your roof and uh, you won't be having to think about it too much. If I could maybe, to Rachel's question, I think, you know, we have to unfortunately look at it again separate between the upstream and the downstream. Um, From a community college perspective, you educate people to be car mechanics. But at the same time, we still have car manufacturing in the United States. Not every car is imported. Um, but on the solar side, what we actually have, well, it's true, you know, you need to install it, we want it. We need to educate those people, but everything that we install is imported. And to me, that's not a sustainable solution. Um, energy independence, you know, was something in the 70s, it was dependence on foreign oil. Today, we have 100% almost dependence on imported solar. If solar is really going to be the large energy provider going forward, Number one, I don't think it's in our national security interest, nor is it long-term sustainable from a job perspective. So what in my mind was completely absent from this totally polarized discussion was either a proposal or even the discussion of what can we do to stimulate manufacturing in the United States. At the same time, not losing jobs in the downstream, but building up you know, a sustainable um, with its supply chain, this is a multiplier again. We can all talk about what that multiplier is, but it's 4x or higher. Um, and that is where I think, you know, the, the policy, this the Section 201 completely went astray. Um, and, of course, it's not in the interest of an installer because they're used to getting cheap feedstock from China. It's okay, it's cheap. But it's not in the interest of the U.S. taxpayer because the customer is paying the 30%. It's not the Chinese manufacturer. They don't care. They get the same amount of money selling this product now than after. Plus, they have 2.5 gigawatts of cells they can import for free. So if last year we had 10 gigawatts installed, that's a quarter. I mean, it's... It was supposed to stimulate manufacturing in this country, but, but you're it saying it doesn't do that. Well, well Mark, it was pointed out already that, you know, you have a, a 30% and you step down. Number one, yeah. a factory takes time to build, so it's completely irrational. No investor is going to do it based on that. So Marcus was talking with us just before the show and want to get your take on this, Tony. Uh, maybe he could tell us as briefly as possible this idea of local content as a way that the Chinese have been operating no, or, the, or the Brazilians, actually. Uh, tell, tell us that story as kind of your way of finessing this whole thing and uh, we'll see what Tony thinks of that. 
in essence, what it means, we could go to the numbers and it gets quite complicated maybe, but basically what it means, if you are a, a, a manufacturer and it sells, let's say, one gigawatt in the United States a year, we say, if you want to sell this, we want you to at least make 50%, let's just say, in the United States. It's a local content requirement. Understanding that if you're manufacturing in China, it costs X, and I could give you the numbers, um, and it's going to be a little bit more expensive in the United States. What we say is, okay, we add, you know, we let you have these higher prices, but whatever comes in from China also gets sold at these higher prices, but the manufacturer from China pays that, not the end customer. The end customer just sees the final price. Through so a local content, you stimulate local manufacturing. And what you, what's going on in Brazil today is every Chinese manufacturer basically is now making modules in Brazil because that's the only way they can get access to the market. Hmm. So Brazil requires that they and it's, hire it's Brazilians WTO to do this. WTO compliant. You know, there's nothing against it because if you can demonstrate that the Chinese are not playing by the rules and they're giving you know unfair trade advantages, then you can ask for that. Let's go back to Tony. What do you think? Well, th th that would presume that we had a rational industrial policy in this country. Exactly. And, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, Joe actually attended one of my lectures quite a few years ago at MIST. Maybe it was a class that he was offering, if I remember Yeah, correctly. yeah, I was teaching that class. You came in as a guest speaker. Right. So that was, that was before China was in the market. But the, the slide I showed at that time was how American manufacturing had gone down and Japanese and European manufacturing had ascended and taken over their position. And the reason for that was because the Japanese and the Europeans were putting in R&D money. They would, they would select several technologies and they would say, well, they're not all going to work, but we're going to support them all and then we're going to pick a winner later. Meanwhile, the U.S. wasn't doing anything like that. And so our manufacturing started to go downhill. Then the Chinese came along, and once again, they had an industrial policy. They said, we realize this is going to be the future, so we're going to support it. And what they did was they read the paper from Hewitt-Packard that said, if you want to bring down the price of solar, it's not technology. It's the size of factories and putting the glass factory and the aluminum frame factory right next door in a big campus. And that's what China did. It's not labor differences that have led to them having lower prices is that they built bigger factories with more lines in them. So it was more of a um, manufacturing multiple lines rather than one custom line. And so they just did it at scale. And that's where they're getting all their price savings. The U.S. has never done that. There hasn't been as much support from the government until just recently. And, in, you know, it's, it's well and good to say let's have local content rules, but what you need is some type of industrial policy that pays for R&D, and that's what a lot of the government has been against in the recent past. So, And there's, of course, know, the, the worry there might be a trade war that other products are going to get slapped with export tariffs from the United States. And then, you know, that's a whole other discussion, not simply solar, but other but, things that our farmers, for example, uh, sell most of their soybeans to China. So this isn't just an issue of one industry, I'm afraid. And it was washing machines, too. For some reason, I don't know why these two products got singled out for this treatment. Some people might say it's just another slap, you know, uh, trying to favor the fossil fuel industry. But because washing machines were included, it seems so random. That's yeah. Well, that's because of Korea um, and, and China, you know, having a, a strong stand there. But to Tony's point, you know, it's true. You need, number one, you need trade policy that makes sense um, or industry policy in the United States. But you also need investors that are willing to invest in the United States. And you need, I think the consumer also has to have a little bit of, and I don't want this to sound wrong, but there should be some pride of buying made in America instead of made in China. I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't buy anything that comes from another country, but I think that it would have been nice if the companies that we had or that we have, if, if they can get a little bit of um, a customer base simply because it's manufactured in the United States. But ultimately, it's the investors. If you don't have investors that are willing to fund a factory, this is not cheap. If you want to do what Tony was saying, the point was in China, they got access to capital at free or worse than free. Like, yeah, And that's how they could build multiple lines. It's not scaling, it's replication, actually. Scaling is, is something else. It's a misused term here. But the point is that's how the Chinese replicated. We could do this in America too, but there's no investor who says manufacturing in America makes sense. Yeah. 
And if you just joined us on Planet Watch, I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we're with Marcus Beck in the studio with Tony Tersall on the line. He is with a company Applied that, Solar Energy. Applied Solar Energy that puts in these panels both for industry and homeowners. Marcus Beck is a, has been in all aspects of the manufacturing side, has invented some various solar technologies himself, has patents. So he's been seeing, seeing this from many different angles. Oh, so I mean, we don't have a crystal ball, but what's ahead next? What do you what do you think are, is going to happen the next year with this new reality? And, and I'll let uh, Tony start. Well, I think um, some manufacturers are going to hold prices. The premium panels um, cost quite a bit more and haven't really been the cause of the problem. And we we just got word from one of our vendors, Panasonic, that they're not changing prices. Some of it's already been priced into the market over the last six months. So we might not see as large increases as we think. Uh, what it will do more likely is just keep the decreases from coming that, that uh, we might have expected. So if you look at the, you know, a graph of price over time, it might level out for a little while and then it's going to start dropping again. So in the long run, uh, It'll just slow down the industry a little bit for a time, but then things will be back to normal. We'll catch up with the curve, the uh, cost curve that we've been following. And maybe the United States will actually start to get some leadership with some actual vision to support renewable energy, you know, clean, limitless, homegrown, democratically distributed energy instead of the cheap and dirty stuff uh, like the people now seem to be just absolutely hell-bent in love with. And, and, you know, that'll really change the picture big time. And that's the right way to do all these things. Yeah, and it looks like we may be tuning in at the last bit of our program to Bernadette Del Charo, who is part of an industry association in support of solar installers in California in particular, but it's part of a national uh, group. So um, hopefully she's just coming on the line in a moment, and we'll have Bernadette Del Charo, executive director and of Cal SEIAA, which is... SEIA is Solar Energy Industries Association. There's a national organization. And CalSIA is the yeah. uh, California version of that. And I think Tony, Marcus, and I all have met and know Bernadette. And uh, I don't know if you can hear us here, Bernadette, but hello. I don't Thanks. think she's not get on the uh, line. Sorry. Okay, Engineer is going to get her on okay. uh, shortly, if possible. And if not, we'll just have to. Um, just got to give you listeners a preview. Don't anybody go away. I've got to tell you about this week's eclipse and the other very special day that's <laughs> coming up on Friday. Oh, big mystery preview. <laughs> has to do with solar energy and shadows and things. So we asked Tony what he thought is going to happen in the future. Um, I, I, people don't like to prognosticate a whole lot, but I'm going to let you do that just because you seem to have a crystal ball in your lap, even though maybe those people with a camera can tell you don't, but maybe it's in your head. What do you think, Marcus Beck, is going to happen in this next I'm going to move the camera to where they can see his solar shirt here while you're yeah, talking. Yeah, I think Tony's right in the sense that it probably not really going to change a lot of things. I think that's a sad story. It will not support um, U.S. manufacturing jobs on the solar side. If anything, it you know it, it may Trump look good and coal look a little bit better, and people maybe think negatively of solar cells and you know a little bit of China bashing. But um, a day after the tariffs were announced, the CEO of Rena Solar, one of the big Chinese manufacturers, already said, look, at the end of 2018, module prices will be, be below the prices that we had at the end of 2017, you know, tariff or not. So the Chinese are just going to keep bringing the cost down in order to stay competitive. But the moment they probably find another market where they can dump their product, they may pull product out of the U United States market and that's going to slow down the market. So in the end, I think we're going to lose some jobs. What that number is, I do not know. We'll not generate sustainable manufacturing jobs out of this. It's not going to happen. It's completely wrong policy. Um, yeah, so, and then... We'll see where the price bottoms out. I mean, at some point, there's a real cost. You know, it cannot go to zero. That's true. Um, and we're just going to be slowed down in the United States. We're still more expensive than, you know, other parts in the world because of our non-module costs. Remember, the module is less than 20 or 15, depends on the, on the sector, of the whole system cost. We need to get our, called soft costs down. That's customer acquisition, installation, and permitting. Okay. Well, Bernadette couldn't join us by phone, but she did send us an email, which Tommy Martin is going to read for us uh, with her perspective on all of this. 
Oh, I actually have a, an announcement from Pauline is what I have. In oh, well, no, on the Gmail account, apparently, there is an email. That's oh. where I'm getting the email from Pauline. I thought that's what you were talking no, about. No, Bernadette Del Charo said she was writing to us on the Gmail account. No, it's Pauline. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I was misinformed. Um, Pauline Seals, is that who it is? Yeah, oh, it's okay. an announcement about an event. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Safe Our Shores big protest against offshore oil, which is February 3rd, which is relevant to our topic. So Certainly was relevant as well last week when we talked to Dan Hayfley. And so Dan you. will be there at the event, it says. Okay, He's one thank of the you. speakers. Thanks for that news bulletin. <laughs> All right, well, we're sorry we couldn't share the SEAA state perspective, but I believe uh, it was similar to what Tony was presenting, which was that there's going to be job losses. They'll level out. They may not be catastrophic, but um, they might put a dent uh, in the short run in what is a burgeoning and necessary industry. And as Joe mentioned, um, the fast expansion of solar is one of the ways we're gonna get to the goals, both in California and nationwide to reduce fossil fuel use and uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which we have to do rapidly. I, I don't know what the figures are, for you know how fast solar would need to expand do you i don't know if you have those well there's a number so it's it's the number of studies like if you're interested uh, as a listener you can go out and can look at uh, shell for example one of the world's largest energy traders electricity traders most people don't know that um, shell, shell, oil. shell yeah shell um, oil yeah um oil dot shell right um so they have a study called Oceans and a, um, a, a, a scenario, and you can look. Then you can look at the International Energy um, uh, Administration's studies. There's different, you know, bodies that um, pro they try to project how much solar will will grow and what percentage it will will play. And ultimately, the good news is. Is up. There's only one way to go. Whether Trump wants it to go that way or not, it doesn't matter. The rest of the world, remember last year we put in about 195 gigawatts. This year we're going to put in over 100 gigawatts worldwide. Whether the United States is going to be 10 gigawatts again this year or a little less, somebody else is going to take up that product that's available globally. If we think of this globally, because you know the United States is not a country that it, that's isolated. Yeah, as I planet. Keep, as I keep yeah. saying, no, you know the consolation I get, d despite these idiots we have at the top here, the rest of the world is going to drag this country kicking and screaming into doing the right thing economically and technologically eventually. What so. percentage right now is the solar? Uh, of, of the portfolio of all of our energy use, if you count everything. Well, I don't know globally. I think globally we're still point some percent. But in countries like Germany, there are days where, you know, like multiple days a year where solar produces more energy than a country can consume. You have other countries where this is now, Italy is, is in, this, in this fold as well, Denmark, there's countries also with wind. But the point being that there are so many countries now um, Spain also, where you will produce more electricity on a number of days than you consume at this time, and yet it's still a single it's still a single percentage point of the overall energy in those countries. And in Germany, it's it's dual uh, dual digits, but um, it's only one way up. <laughs> and we have to do it as fast as possible. Let's just put it that yeah. way. <laughs> well, this has been, uh, Tony, I want to thank you for joining us here on Planet Watch. It's been a really interesting conversation, and I wish you all the best in your business and efforts to bring solar to both residents and businesses throughout the Monterey Bay, where we're originating. And um, Marcus, if you want to stick around, um, we're going to have Joe give us some sky talk. As and some fast phenomena. as possible. <laughs> well, you don't have to talk fast because <laughs> if you talk twice as fast, we'll hear you twice as less. So thank you, Tony. I'm going to say goodbye and um, hope you get to tune in to Planet Watch some other time as well. Stay on, Tony. Thank I, you. Got, I got some cool astronomy stuff for you here in the next three or four you minutes. Can keep so listening, but we won't keep, keep you online. <laughs> and right. One of these days, I want to get you up here to meet with meet Marcus. I always like to be at meetings of great minds and see the sparks fly. So thanks to both of you. Um, hey, folks, you, you may not know that we have an eclipse coming up this week. The, the Earth is going to eclipse the sun for the moon. So we are going to have a total lunar eclipse on the early morning of January 31st, which is this coming Wednesday. So that is Tuesday night, <laughs> late, late, late Tuesday night, early morning, Wednesday morning, the East Coast only gets to see the beginning part of it, but here on the West Coast, we get to see the whole thing. You gotta drag yourself out of bed. Well, the total part lasts for about an hour and a quarter, centered on 5.30 a.m. 
So you do the math. You know, you got to get up. If you want to see some of the interesting part as it goes into totality, you got to be up a little after 4 a.m., um, and uh, the moon will probably turn reddish, even though all of the direct sunlight will be blocked by the Earth. Why is that? Because the sunsets and sunrises in the atmosphere all the way around the circumference of that silhouetted, hulking black Earth as seen from the moon, that light gets scattered onto the moon, making the moon kind of a reddish color. So uh, you can actually do remote sensing of the state of the Earth's atmosphere by the color of the light that gets cast onto the moon. So, uh, and, and it's the second full moon in the same month, so they call it a blue moon. And it's a moon where full moon coincides with its closest approach to the Earth for the month called perigee. And so people are calling it the super blue blood moon. This blood moon is, is kind of a, all the rage lately. All, the, all total eclipses are red, except if there's been a major volcanic eruption that has filled the stratosphere with a global smog layer. In such rare cases, the moon actually disappears during a total eclipse. I saw this happen in 1963 after a major volcano down in Indonesia had gone off. Happened again in 1991 or 90 or whatever it was, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, uh, except it was all cloudy and rainy here <laughs> at that time. But anyway, so um, it's going to be really great weather here in California or Santa Cruz anyway. Uh, so everybody, and by the way, this is our only eclipse this year. The only eclipse of any kind, solar, lunar, partial, total, is this coming early Wednesday morning. Uh, also, the other great holiday, I think we should actually declare a national holiday for Groundhog Day. That's Friday, February 2nd. I like that holiday because it has to do with weather and climate and sun and shadows and, you know, we're into solar energy. And, but the thing that's interesting astronomically is it's a cross-quarter day. That means it's a day that's roughly halfway between a solstice and an equinox. If you imagine a clock face, 12 would be the winter solstice, the December solstice, 3 would be the spring equinox, 6 would be the summer or, or June solstice, 9 would be the September equinox. Well, that splits up your clock or your pie into four quarters. The cross-quarter days are the diagonals, the X that is superimposed on that big plus sign, making eight pieces of a pie. So Groundhog Day is one of them, Halloween is one of them, May Day is one of them, and so on. So uh, we got these two wonderful things coming up. And, and by the way, when you have the sun and the moon and the earth lined up for either a solar or a winter or a lunar eclipse, such a lineup is referred to as a syzygy, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, one of my favorite words. Go look that up. <laughs> oh, and last, I promised I would announce that there is a, an event um, this coming Thursday, February 1st, uh, Citizen Science. And this is something that you can do all over the country, but the libraries here have organized a series of evening talks by scientists for the community, general level talks, and it's called Citizen Science. This one is on the Corcoran Lagoon, which is right outside this studio, and a whole bunch of neighbors and companies have gotten together to protect its wildlife. So that'll be 6.30. Um, geez, I think it's at the Live Oak Library, which is right next to this radio station. So uh, check out Citizen Science. Thank you, Joe, and we appreciate you listening. This is Planet Watch for another week here all around the globe, and we are here Presenting big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast by simply going to planetwatchradio.com.